So I hope it's become clear that Jesus' story cannot be um, understood properly apart from the story that the Old Covenant Scriptures tell. Uh, His incarnation and death and resurrection can only be misunderstood apart from the story that we've traced thus far. Right, so if we short circuit the story that the Old Testament is telling and come to Jesus right away, we're lacking all the necessary context to make sense of what we're reading. So it comes, Jesus' story, not as another story, but as the culmination of the divine plan within history. Or to put it more simply, Jesus cannot be understood apart from Adam and Abraham and Moses and David. We have to know what's going on there if we're to know what's happening in Jesus' story. So we ended our lecture last week with the nation of Israel in the midst of exile. The nation had been taken captive into foreign lands, namely the Babylonian Empire. That's where we ended, but the scriptures take the story further in books like Ezra and Nehemiah and certain of the minor prophets. They chronicle the nation's return to the promised land. So it seems that the exile imposed upon the nation of Israel because of its idolatry had ended, right? Remember, that was part of the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant um, stipulations. If they obey, they'll be blessed. If they disobey, they'll go into exile. So they've gone into exile. Now we're on the far side of that exile. They're back home. So it seems exile is over. The people are back in the land and the divine plan is restored, right? We're back on track. Now, that's true. We are back on track, albeit partially. The nation has returned. There have been indeed genuine reformations. But hovering throughout Israel's return to the promised land is this nagging sense that the exile is not over. So unlike our translations, which end in the book of Malachi, the Hebrew scriptures end in the book of Second Chronicles. So ours end in Malachi, but in, if you go to a Hebrew Bible today or in the past, it's Second Chronicles is where it ends. And that's important because in many ways, what we find in Second Chronicles serves as a summary and capstone of the entire Old Covenant scriptures. So there's a lot of genealogies, right, going from Adam all the way to where we find ourselves in Second Chronicles. And specifically, how that book ends is worth our attention. And what it demonstrates to us is that the nation, or rather, what it demonstrates to us is how the nation understood its own story post-exile. So allow me to read those words for you. They're there on your paper. It's Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 through 23. So this is how the Old Testament ends. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, um, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whomever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord, be, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And thus, the sprawling story that we've traced from Genesis comes to a close. At once, hopeful, let them go up, and yet deeply melancholic. It is an end to the story, but more so, the Old Testament scriptures come to a close as a story in search of an end. Because, well, all the promises to the patriarchs haven't been fulfilled yet. What about what God promised to Abraham? What about what God promised to David? What about this awaiting resolution to the Mosaic Covenant? None of that is taken care of. And so we end on this strange note where King Cyrus just says, go back to the land. Go back to the land. So we get back into the land, and we're going to fast forward now many years to Jesus' time. But what I want you to see is that in the interim, Israel is still in some kind of exile. Things are not where they should be. The promises haven't been restored. They're in the land, but we're nowhere near the days of David and Solomon. This is a drastically different situation. So, just a little bit of information to tie up where we're going to find ourselves today. So, we come to this next section, uh, New Adam and New Temple. So, the covenant, or rather the question that the Old Covenant Scriptures leave us asking is, what about the promises to the patriarchs? What about Adam? What about Abraham? And what about David? Now, immediately, the New Covenant Scriptures open with an answer. This is the first verse in the New Testament. It says, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we end on this dramatic cliffhanger, no resolution to the story. And then we have the intertestamental period, which is some, I forget if it's 200, 400 years, some large span of time between the last prophet and the advent of Jesus Christ. Um, we're wondering what's going on. Jesus comes on the scene and immediately he's connected back to what has come before. So our first introduction to Jesus is in relation to the story that has preceded him. The one concerning the promise made to these men, David and Abraham. So he, Jesus, is what Matthew is telling us here, is the promised seed to whom these promises were originally made. It's him um, who's arrived in whom their fulfillment rests. So in some sense, right, if we could fast forward and think of Jesus' um, death, resurrection, and ascension, those are somehow the culmination of the story that we've been told so far. The promises to Abraham, um, David, and the Mosaic Covenant all somehow relate to those events, Jesus' death, resurrection, and Ascension. So we're going to try and connect all the pieces. Anyway, 
The phrase that introduces us to Jesus' arrival is this, and it's there on the screen, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, a rather inconspicuous statement in our language, that is, but it's more telling in the original. So this is from a commentator, Craig Bloomberg, um, on this very verse. He says, the first phrase, a record of the genealogy, would more literally be translated a book of the Genesis or origin. So in the Greek, it reads Biblios Genesos. Biblios Genesos. So he says it should read a book of the Genesis. Now it's a particular phrase that appears elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, two places in particular. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 It says, this is the account, Biblios Genesis, of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then again, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, this is the book of generations, Biblios Genesis, of Adam. And then it proceeds to chronicle his genealogy. So the scripture, as soon as it opens here in the New Testament, is spoon-feeding us a um, quite obvious point, and that is Jesus' story runs right back to the very roots. Um, in his Biblios Genesis, in some sense, we're going back to the very beginning. We're going back to the very book of the generations. So in some sense, now coming to Jesus, he's not merely the culmination of the story, but it's beginning, or better stated, the story's new begin. Jesus, just in this one phrase we learn, is marching us straight back to the garden. He's taking us to the place where it all began. Now, a particular favorite theologian of mine, he put it this way. If someone ties a very complicated knot, and the story that we've told thus far is very complicated. He says the only way to untie it is to do it in reverse order. Adam has tied the human family up in knots, and Jesus moves backwards through Adam's story, unraveling the knot of faithlessness, following Adam's path back to the point where it all went wrong. So, Jesus is tracing the story back to its beginning, right? We're, we're almost rewinding. We're going, think of it maybe as we've started in the garden and then we've moved east, right? Remember, east of Eden. There we go, east of Eden. We keep going, going, going. And finally, we get to the point of Jesus and then we start going back on that same road. We're, we're turning around and going back the way that we came. So, it's a tad cryptic in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's not at all cryptic in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is baptized. Over him, the divine word is spoken. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And upon him, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And immediately, we're taken to a genealogy. Baptism, genealogy. And this genealogy goes right the way through the patriarchs, down through all the promise bearers. This is Luke chapter 3, if you'd like to go there yourselves, 
Anyway, down to the patriarchs, um, down to the promise bearers, till we come to Adam, the son of God. So Jesus' story, his baptism, Luke wants to connect it with Adam, the son of God, what's going on there. And so like Adam, Jesus is another son of God. Adam is the son of God, and Jesus is the son of God. And what this new son of God is coming to do is to create a new human race over whom he's the head. Now, if you guys read Romans chapter 5, the latter half in particular, this is what Paul's up to. He's contrasting Adam as the head of the old human race and Christ as the head of the new human race. In Adam, all died. In Christ, all are made alive. Through one man's disobedience, sin came to the lot. And through one man's obedience, righteousness comes to lot. So he contrasts them. So we have the first son of God and the human race that descended from him. And now, in Jesus, we're going back and we're given another son of God. We have a new human race. Interestingly, in Romans 5, immediately after is... um, a passage about baptism. Now, why baptism? Because in baptism, we die to the old human race, we die to the race of Adam, and we're born into the race of Jesus Christ. We're baptized into him. He becomes the head of whom we are the body. So, you get the point. There's a new son of God, a a, a new human race that will come through him. We're taking that road and we're going all the way back to the beginning. So the passage, the Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 passage is so pregnant with these notions that certain commentators have uh, floated this as a potential translation. Um, They say, this is uh, Davies and Allison in their commentary, they say, the book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The book of the new Genesis. You kind of see what's going on there. Now, I think that's probably a little bit too ambitious of a translation, but nevertheless, that idea, new Genesis, is embedded in the passage. And it comes to its most beautiful expression, in my opinion, in the angel Gabriel's words to Mary. Um, Remember Genesis chapter 3, the mother of all living. Now, he announces the birth of Jesus, the promised seed to her. And and she responds and says, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. There we are, the Son of God again. So he says, in response to her question about, well, how am I going to bear this child? Because I'm a virgin. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High, the, His power will overshadow you. Now, it's interesting because the Spirit overshadows Mary's wombs, much, womb, much like, um, well, let me ask you a question. When, when do we find the Spirit kind of overshadowing something, anything? What did you say, Dan? Yeah, he's hovering over the waters in the beginning, right? He's hovering 
over the face of the waters when the earth was formless and void. And here he's hovering over Mary's womb when it is formless and void. So in the beginning, the Spirit creates life. And if you read later on throughout the Scriptures, the Spirit is also always associated with this gift of breath, the gift of life. So there he is hovering over the waters, creating life for the first time. And here he's hovering over Mary's womb, recreating life, a new creation coming into birth in Jesus Christ. So, the divine presence um, resting over and upon the woman and literally gestating within her leads us to another theme, right? Um, And that's the temple. The word overshadow that is used in this passage in the Gospel of Luke in the original Greek is epikesei. I'm not sure. And anyway, the point is that it's the same word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses to describe the Spirit's presence in the temple. So he overshadows Mary's womb, and we're reminded of creation when all things came into being, but what we're also reminded of is the temple because it's the same word. So when the tabernacle was constructed in Exodus chapter 40, or or rather when the instructions were given in Exodus and then finished in Exodus chapter 40, it concludes with these words. This is Exodus 40 verses 34 and, and 35. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. There's our word. So if you go to the Septuagint, you'll find it's the very same word that is used to describe the spirit over Mary's womb. And it says, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the spirit settles upon Mary as it settled upon the tabernacle in the past. And quite literally, um, Mary, in this sense, is a temple. She's, in fact, in the story thus far, she's the greatest temple. Greater than the garden, greater than the tabernacle, greater than the physical construction, because she's got God in the flesh dwelling within her and the Spirit overshadowing her. Now, this is where the Catholics get the uh, doctrine of um, of, uh, Mary's assumption into heaven. So they take the idea that she was, um, you know, the, the one of the greatest temples, um, and they use it to justify the fact that um, her body didn't remain in the grave, or even in some cases that she didn't die and she got taken into heaven, that God wouldn't let his temple rot in the earth. It's a nice sentiment, but, you know, it's just it's speculation. So, again, you see the point, right? Mary's the greatest iteration of the temple so far. Um, She's she's the the house that the the divine presence dwells in. It rests upon her and in her. But rather quickly, the woman's designation as a new temple gives way to an even greater iteration, right? So she's a new temple, but rather quickly... The scripture loses sight of that, and we move to even uh, a better temple. John chapter 1, verse 14. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the child in Mary's womb is more than a new creation. But the word, the only begotten from the Father, his very glory and splendor. And so as the divine presence once entered the temple, consecrating it and sanctifying it, so here the word, the second person of the Trinity, enters human flesh, unites it with his own person. It was he who became more flesh, and it became flesh rather, and more crucially, the passage says, and dwelt among us. In the original, it's the word sekenoma, and it quite literally means to live or camp in a tent. So, the word became flesh, and he lived or camped in a tent among us. So, one commentator remarks, the translation, um, he tabernacled among us, is more apt and suitable than he dwelt among us. So, our verses, translations read, actually, you should have this in the footnote in your Bible. Um, it should have a, 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 a asterisk or a, a whatever there, and it should say tabernacled under it. Mine does, the, uh, the New American Standard. But what are we being told? What are we being told here? He tabernacled among us. Is that the human body that the Word assumed is the reality to which the tabernacle pointed. It is the tent, his body, that the divine presence has pitched among us, right? Jesus, his flesh and blood, is now the new temple. Um, A more recent translation of the New Testament uh, renders it this way. And the Logos, or the Logos, became flesh and pitched a tent among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the Father's only one, full of grace and truth. So we might put it this way. Jesus' human body, his actual flesh and blood, is the new garden. The very literal meeting place between God and man. Stones and wood and inanimate objects have been replaced by human limbs and organs and tissue. Again, consider what the temple was. It was where you could come to meet God. Now, the place where you come to meet God is another one of you. It's a human. That, that's the temple now. And I want to say a bunch of stuff here about, and I'll get to this next week, but it's worth noting that Jesus doesn't just fulfill the Old Testament promises. Okay, that's good. He absolutely outdoes them and outstrips them. So the promises that you get in the Old Testament are, are, are absolutely ramped up in Jesus. They, 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 take, they go to a level that even the prophets didn't realize they would go to. Um, and that's part of why. Jesus was rejected and so on and so forth. We'll come to that as well. But anyway, we'll, 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 we'll touch on that last week. So, um, 
yeah, Jesus is the new temple. So coming on the hills of John's statement in chapter 1, verse 14, um, we get the story of the temple cleansing. The temple had become corrupt, um, a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. And Jesus, fueled by zeal for his father's house, wiped it clean, driving out the money changers and their greed. And naturally, uh, the people question him. Think of this like maybe someone storming the, the, the White House or something like that, or, or one of our you know, national buildings. He goes in there, he cleans it out, and so they ask him the most reasonable question. Then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So they're like, well, who gave you the right to come in here and to tear up the temple? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So his statement is confusing to them. He seems not to answer the question, but to make another almost unrelated statement. And the passage continues. Then the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was speaking in veiled terms about his resurrection. The temple that would be destroyed and raised again was not the one that he cleansed out, but his own body, the true temple. His human person is now the place where the divine presence rests, where it's to be sought. And if you read um, the Gospels with this in mind, they really do open up. You, you see new dimensions um, about them. In fact, in John chapter 1, um, remember when, um, who was it that was sitting under the tree? No, not Zacchaeus, it was Zacchaeus, but uh, the, the, Zacchaeus climbed in the tree, but in John 1, he's sitting under the tree. I can't remember his name. It's one of the disciples. Yeah, he saw him from afar. Anyway, Jesus knew the path, right? What was that? Thaddeus? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we have to look at it. We all have our guesses. But anyway, Jesus says to him, and he says, you're going to see greater miracles than these. And he says, and you'll see heaven open, something to this effect, and angels um, descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. That's another temple motif, right? Remember the Tower of Babel? Remember the ladder of Jacob? Jesus says, I'm the ladder of Jacob. I'm the place where heaven and earth meet. And you find this all throughout the gospel, specifically where Jesus comes into confrontation with the Pharisees. Something greater than the temple is here. Anyway, it's so awesome, so awesome. So, we move from Jesus as a new, did someone get it? Did you get it, Laurel? Nathaniel. So we move from Jesus as the new Adam, the new son of God, and um, the new son of God and the new temple, to now, um, I want to show you that he's a new Israel. So we'll come to David and Abraham a little bit in our Matthew chapter 1, one verse for, or that verse. But first, I, I want to show you something else that Matthew has in mind. Now, in the ancient prophecies, um, there were cryptic words about Israel. And still to this day, the church and the synagogue disagree about how to interpret these passages. And the central one 
um, the central one of these cryptic passages about Israel is Isaiah 49. Um, you have on your papers before you the latter half of that passage. I want to read to you the first half, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 3. It says, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now, Israel is obviously the nation's name, but either in this passage it seems to be personified, the nation. The nation itself is speaking and talking about God forming it in the womb and so on and so forth. Or it's related to a specific figure who's given the title Israel. Yeah, right, Jacob. Of course, Jacob, that was his name. So it seems incredibly personal, though this sort of talk is not unprecedented in the other prophets. We find a similar thing. But the prophecy continues. This is the passage um, on your paper. It says, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. So this figure, Israel, also here called the servant, the passage tells us, is raised up to bring Israel back to the Lord. So it seems we have a clue about how to interpret this passage. Well, let's take a step back. One Israel is called to bring back another Israel. So it seems the one Israel is an individual who is commissioned to restore the other Israel, who can, of course, only be the nation. God elects one Israel to rescue the other. And not only that, but to bring, or to be, rather, a light to the nations, to the Gentile. It's too small a thing, he says to Israel, that you would restore Israel. You're also going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so all this is quite revealing. Remember, God made a covenant with Israel that they might be the means to bring his blessing to the nations. But they broke that covenant. They lost the blessing and they themselves became cursed. We considered how God promised to make a new covenant that one day would replace the old covenant. But here, he promises something different. He promises to make a new Israel. So we have two things now. On the one hand, we have a new covenant that we're to be looking forward to. And on the other hand, we have a new Israel that we're to be looking forward to. And this Israel will restore the other. And it's crucial that we understand this point. Because the Mosaic Covenant, even though the nation broke it, is still in effect. 
despite the fact that the nation is back in the land, a curse remains upon them. And if the story of redemption is to move forward, that curse must be dealt with, right? We got to deal with the disobedience of the people of Israel, and the Mosaic Covenant has to be completed. So there's two things. We've got to deal with the curse, and we've got to have complete obedience to the covenant. So in short, Israel still needs to hold up its end of the bargain. And if we learned anything from that, what was that, the third lecture? If we learned anything from that is that if that's going to happen, if there's going to be obedience to the covenant, we need a new Israel. We need a new Israel to show up on the scene. Now, let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Moving on from the genealogy, we notice something peculiar and strangely familiar about the initial moments of Jesus' life, about how they play out. And what we find is that they mirror, almost to a T, the events of Israel's history. So let's trace them out a little bit. Jesus is born. The Magi come to visit him. And through them, Herod finds out that the king of the Jews has been born. And so, God warns um, the Magi. They leave. Jesus leaves to Egypt. And what does Herod do? He murders all the babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem, or all the men, two, or all the babies, or the male babies, two years and uh, younger. Thank you. Um, he murders them. Who does that remind you of? Pharaoh. Right? That's what Pharaoh did. He, he murdered all Israel's babies, their boys. That's what Herod's doing. He's the new Pharaoh. What does Jesus do? A little bit like Moses, he escapes down to Egypt. He flees the Pharaoh. It's interesting, the typology is reversed. Who's Egypt now? It's actually Israel. It becomes so corrupt that Israel's Egypt. And the place where he goes to flee is actually a safe place. Egypt is the safe place. Anyway, he goes to flee there till things blow over in, um, in his homeland. And then he comes out of Egypt, right? He leaves Egypt and goes back to the promised land. It's the story of the Exodus. He's going back home, right? And Matthew tells us that this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Right? There he goes. He's following Israel's story. Um, he returns to the promised land. And then shortly after that, um, he, we hear about John the Baptist. And then Jesus is baptized. He passes through the waters, right? Like Israel did. They, they went through the waters. Remember, we talked about that? They were baptized into Moses. Jesus is baptized in the, the Jordan River. And then what happens after his baptism? He's driven into the wilderness to be tempted. What happened, happened to Israel after they went through the waters? They went out into the wilderness, and there they were tempted um, at the waters of Meribah, and they, and they failed. And so you get this picture, and that's just a, a, a very, very small part of it. Um, there's a, if you want it, remind me, I'll send it to you. There's an article, or a paper rather, by 
uh, Peter Lightheart, a guy that we've used a lot in our study thus far, um, he makes the case that, case that the entire Gospel of Matthew um, is Jesus' life, obviously, and it recapitulates Israel's history, like to a T. So we, we, we're just dealing with the beginning here, but then it goes on and on and on. And all the events and the ordering of those events matches the way the Old Testament tells the story as well. Um, remind me if you want that, I'll get it to you. It's really, really interesting. So you get the point though, right? Jesus is the true Israel. He retrace, retraces the nation's history, um, except he succeeds at every point where the people failed. The Mosaic Covenant, which proved to be too burdensome for them, is carried by Jesus in obedience. Um, he loves God, the Father, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he loves his neighbor as himself. He's obedient to the commands. So that's what Matthew's telling us right there in the beginning. We've got a new Israel. New Adam, new temple, new Israel. We're going to circle around when we get to the cross and tie all these up. Now we come to the next... Uh, oh, they're there. I'm sorry, guys. Um, those are all the passages. It's too late now. Um, the king and... Are the promised king and kingdom and his kingdom. So from the new Genesis and a new nation and um, all that, we proceed to now the promised king and his kingdom. Again, let's go back to Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now being that we covered the Davidic covenant last week, we don't need to do too much rehash here. Um, the descendants or the seed, remember, promise to the king and his everlasting kingdom, Matthew is telling us, are realized in Jesus. He's the son of David, the one to whom the promise was made. So it's here alluded to at the very beginning of his story um, that Jesus is going to fulfill the covenant, and it reverberates um, the Davidic promise um, throughout Jesus' ministry until he establishes the kingdom in his ascension. So we've already talked about when Gabriel came to visit Mary, but I want to read these words from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. It says, uh, Gabriel says rather, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's pretty obvious. The child's story is inseparably bound to the promises made to the king. And by the time Jesus is through, his kingdom will have been established. The promise made to David will have been realized. And it's this kingdom, of course, that Jesus comes proclaiming. The synoptic gospels all witness to the same original message that Jesus preached. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So central to Jesus' message is the proclamation that the promised kingdom, notice not merely a human kingdom, but a divine one, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
That was Jesus' message. That's what he preached. The kingdom is here. The time that the prophets anticipated, all those, uh, all those prophecies that we looked at, Jesus is saying, now is the time. But, and this is where things get interesting, as his ministry progresses, the nature of his kingship and his kingdom come into view. The nature of it. And it's quite startling and unanticipated. Now, our first glimpse into the nature of this kingdom that Jesus is going to establish is in the Beatitudes. In them, the character of the kingdom is spelled out. It's a dramatic, indeed, a scandalous reversal of common expectation. Those who are blessed are not the strong and the rich and the secure, but just the opposite. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. So, if we're awaiting this kingdom, suddenly we're told we learn something about it. It's not, it doesn't jive with the way things are. And of course, maybe to us, Jesus' proclamation seems normal, right? We've grown up hearing these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. It just becomes so... um, common that it become we just lose the effect but to those present it would have been totally different now call to mind the messianic um, silhouette that's been presented to us in the writings and the prophets the king we are expecting is a davidic king a conquering warrior right that's what david was we're expecting someone to come to shatter Israel's enemies, and to rule with an iron fist. Even in those passages that we looked at, even one that is as tender as Isaiah 11, talks about this coming uh, branch from the the stump of Jesse, who's going to slay the wicked with the sword of his mouth, and who's going to rule with an iron scepter. So we're expecting this. But... Here a little, there a little, a different picture begins to emerge. And the most telling example, one of them at least, is John the Baptist. None other than the prophet sent to prepare the way for Jesus. John's predetermined messianic expectations are not being met. He's thinking, we're going to run roughshod over the Roman Empire, over everyone's enemies, and then he's in prison. And what does he do? He sends a delegation to ask Jesus, Luke chapter 7, verse 20, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? So what I want us to see here is that Jesus' divergence from the popular understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be is so great that even the greatest man born of a woman doubts whether he's the promised one at all. Is it you? And Jesus says, blessed is he who's not offended by me or at me. So, where does this misunderstanding come from? How how, how are we so far off here? Well, it stems on both a personal and national level from a failure to consider the true nature of the problem, what Jesus has arrived to deal with. 
Now, the people considered their ultimate enemy the Roman Empire. And that was mistaken. In the wilderness temptation, Matthew chapter 4, there the true enemy is revealed. And it takes us back to the garden where the serpent tempted and deceived humanity, stealing their inheritance from them and making them slaves. Now, as we've noted, this theme in large part has dropped from the picture. The Old Covenant Scriptures are surprisingly not too concerned with things supernatural. I mean, it's there, but nowhere in the same intensity that it is in the New Covenant Scriptures. Jesus enters the narrative and suddenly angels and demons and principalities and powers are everywhere. They're all over the place. And although the humans in the narrative about Jesus' life are almost entirely ignorant about him. The demons are not. I know who you are, they shout as he confronts them, the Holy One of Israel. So churning beneath the surface, hidden from human perception, is the true battle. And that is, Genesis chapter 3, the one between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's what Jesus is coming to address. That was the primeval promise that the seed would crush the serpent's head and that the serpent would bruise his heel. So Jesus' kingdom is not primarily in conflict with man's kingdom, though it is, but the more sinister kingdom that inspires them. And this we learn in the temptation narrative. So you see here, um, taking a step back for a moment, this idea of the promises being not just fulfilled, but taken to a whole nother level, right? Israel was expecting an earthly kingdom. Jesus comes to do something on a far greater scale, right? The promises are transfigured in Jesus. So behind all the kingdoms of men lies the kingdom of darkness. And in a very real manner, those kingdoms are under the serpent's authority. He directs them according to his will. And so that the conflict is not with flesh and blood characterizes its nature. It's a different kind of conflict. Remember, Jesus explains this to Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So, it's a different sort of kingdom that requires a different sort of warfare. Jesus cannot engage the serpent on his own terms. And if we go to that temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4, that's what it's all about. The serpent tempts Jesus to seize his destiny. Note the eerie similarity between the temptation and the garden. What was the tree of the knowledge all about? Becoming kings, seizing your destiny to do what you wanted to do. Jesus, or the, the serpent takes Jesus to a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, you can have them if you would worship me. He says, you can have what you want, but on my terms. And of course, Jesus refused. He would accomplish his victory according to the divine will 
or not at all. I'm going to do this God's way or not at all. So the victory must be achieved in the precise opposite way that it was lost. This is what the apostle says, Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as though the one man, for as through the one man disobedience, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. So the serpent tempts Jesus in the wilderness to commit the very same sin as Adam in the garden. And the two events, Adam in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness, ought to play in our mind like a split screen. It's the same thing happening. Now, Adam, he didn't fear the Lord, and he disobeyed, and he brought ruin upon the entire human race. Jesus did fear the Lord, and he obeyed, bringing redemption to the human race. Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Adam failed. Jesus succeeds. So here, the theme of human maturation comes into view. Again, Adam tried to seize his destiny and then he lost it. He short-circuited the entire process, and he remained in immaturity, and not even more, and more than that, sin. So here, we, what do we have? Jesus is carrying the human race to maturity. He's recapitulating the development process that the first man was supposed to, com- uh, to complete. Adam was supposed to resist the serpent. He was supposed to, 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 to fear the Lord and to then receive his destiny. He did it. Jesus did. So Jesus is marching towards the human destiny of lordship and he's carrying the whole mass of humanity behind him. Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms now. You can have them now. You just got to worship me. Jesus says, nope, I'll do it in obedience to God. So the means, or the end, or the end doesn't justify the means, right? Um, as long as we get there, no, we have to do it God's way. So, It's a different sort of kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. And this makes his actual teaching about the kingdom um, make sense in the parables, right? This is what he teaches about. Let me read uh, one of those to you. It's Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So the promised kingdom will not be realized through soldier and war horse, but the means will be more like a seed planted in the ground. Initially quite unimpressive, but in time it will mature to encompass the earth and all of its kingdoms so that even the birds of the air come to nest in it. So it's more like leaven in bread, the kingdom is, than it is a swift and decisive military victory. We're learning what Jesus is up to, the kind of kingdom he's come to establish. Patrick Schreiner, in his book, The Kingdom of God, he's got a really good quote. He says, 
In one sense, the good news of the kingdom is what the Jews were expecting. It fulfilled the promises that their enemies would be vanquished, the temple would be rebuilt, and they would occupy their land. However, all these things did not happen when or how they expected. They expected the kingdom achieved with a warrior on a white horse. What they saw was a man from Nazareth who had no place to lay his head. And so, of course, nowhere is this juxtaposition more present than in the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into the capital, declaring his kingship not on a stately charger, but on a lowly donkey. His kingdom is not marked by pomp and circumstance, but by humility and gentility. He's not a conquering military hero that the people expected. He's in fact, reshaping Israel's, Israel's messianic hope in a way that could hardly be anticipated. And we're going somewhere with this, so bear with me. I think the whole thing, right, this, this expectation and the actual fulfillment can be summed up in Peter's confession. Remember Matthew chapter 16, he rightly confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but he radically misunderstood what that meant. He didn't know what it meant to say, you are the Christ. Um, this is Matthew 16, 21 and 23. From that time on, this is immediately after Peter confesses. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Let's look at what Peter does. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Now take that story and put it next to the temptation story. They map onto each other perfectly. Jesus says, I'm the Christ. I'm going to become king. That's what it means, the anointed one. I'm going to reach my destiny. You said rightly, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. This is God's will. Peter says, no way. You're not going to die. It's not going to be that way. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He, he, that's, it's the same thing. Peter, Peter is operating according to not, a, not a, 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 a mindset from the Lord, but a satanic one. So Peter represents man's interests, which are demonically inspired. And what are they? Well, in a word, self-preservation. Now, you can get there, but you don't have to go that way. The divine interest is in suffering and death and on the far side of that resurrection. So, take Peter as a representative of the entire nation. In the last estimate, the people cannot shake free from their demonically inspired expectations. This is what they want. We, we want this type of king, not that one. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it's worth your time. You look it up, um, you just punch it into Google, type in the Messianic secret. Jesus reveals his identity, or rather, Peter confesses Jesus' identity, and then he just suppresses it. He doesn't want anyone to know. Because why? They can only get it wrong. They can only misunderstand him. They're, They're not made new in their mind, so he just doesn't want anyone to know. And then finally, he confesses his true identity in one place. 
where, where he's stripped of everything on trial before the high priest. That's where he confesses. No one can misunderstand what he means by the Christ anymore. There's a criminal. There's a man condemned to death. And there he says, I'm the Christ. All our illusions are shattered about who he is and what he's come to do. And so this is the Apostle Paul's diagnosis. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. He says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So God's wisdom is hidden wisdom. The way of Christ is not what we'd expect, not what we imagine. And Paul says, because the rulers of this world didn't understand him, understand that hidden wisdom, they put him to death. They killed him. It, 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 the, the inversion is just unbelievable. Now, there's more to say. I'm going to skip this section, um, blessing to the nations. I'm just going to skip it because uh, we're pushing time already, and we're going to cover that in some depth next week. So um, wait for it there. What I want to do now is come to the cross. Is to come to the cross. And this is the climax of the entire scriptural narrative. The crucifixion of Jesus. And as the climax, all the themes that we've traced thus far converge in this one event. And we start with humanity's exile from the garden. Go back to that sad story in Genesis 3. They're booted from the garden toward, toward the east. The cherubim are stationed there. And so is the flaming sword. They're exiled. No more of God's presence. Now it seems in the cross that the temple theme is not anywhere on the immediate horizon. But when Jesus finally breathes his last, the scriptures make a heartbreakingly beautiful note. It's Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. It says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Guarded behind the the veil was, of course, God's presence. And in the cross, that guarding veil was torn in two. God's presence was restored to the creation. The whole thing returns to its Edenic status. It's no longer localized in the temple or the tabernacle. And neither no longer localized in Jesus. But now, because the Spirit is given, God's presence is accessed anywhere. Remember the story in John chapter 4, where she says they're arguing about where to worship God. Should we worship in Samaria? On Mount, I can't remember. Or should we worship in Jerusalem? Um, on Horeb, where the temple's at. Um, what should we do? Not Horeb, but anyway, where the temple's at on Zion. And Jesus says, the day's coming where you're not going to worship any of those places. But the worshipers of God will worship Him in spirit and truth. Looking forward to a time when the veil was torn. 
And so all this is made possible because Jesus bore our exile in his body. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now those are our words. Those are the words of the human race, east of Eden. Forsaken, abandoned, exiled. And so Jesus is the true high priest and the true sacrifice and the true temple that purifies humanity, cleansing it from its sin and restoring it to fellowship with God. So the guarding cherubim and the flaming sword led us through, not just the high priest anymore, the whole lot, unhindered and unashamed, cleansed. Which leads us to our second and third themes. That is the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. As we noted, the Mosaic Covenant had to be completed. The nation side had to be upheld. And also the curse had to be removed. Otherwise, the nation remained under the curse and the blessing that they were to take to the nations would never be realized. So, if we don't have this one thing, um, if it's not resolved, um, the story doesn't move forward. We have to take care of this. And of course, what? Jesus, as we've said, is the true Israel who keeps the covenant till the end. He's faithful to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. And he goes to the cross. Then I'll leave the apostle to narrate the story for us. Galatians chapter 3, 14 and 13 and 14. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. <coughs> Excuse me. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there's the two covenants. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the Mosaic covenant. Why? How? By becoming a curse for us. So that the blessing of Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, might go to the nations. So Jesus kept the covenant in the nation's stead, and he bore its curses in his own body on the tree. And thus that blockage created by their disobedience, was removed. Now the promise can flow freely to all the nations of the earth. And like I said, to trace out the Abrahamic covenant and how it comes to realization is our task next week. Um, but our point is simply to note that it starts in the cross. And, of course, this leads to the other theme is the new covenant that was promised, right? Before Jesus' death, you guys know the story, in the Last Supper, he institutes the new covenant. This is my body given for you, and this is my blood shed for you. And what Jeremiah promised comes to its realization. A new covenant is instituted because there's a new sacrifice and a new order in Jesus Christ. And so now that leaves us uh, two themes. We've covered the priest, we've covered the temple, we've covered um, uh, sacrifices, uh, Mosaic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant. Now there's two themes, um, and that's humanity's royal vocation and the serpent 
who opposes it. Now it seems, according to any estimation, that the cross is a defeat. And it is. Jesus, the promised seed, seems to be the one crushed and not the serpent. And that utterly confounding truth that Jesus is crushed on the cross lies at the heart of the gospel. Now, it's quite clear as the gospels portray it that Jesus' crucifixion, it's a defeat, but it's more properly an enthronement. Right? He, in the cross, he's taking his throne. Um, the tree that Paul mentions is a throne. Now, the details are just, I mean, they're just so obvious in the, in the crucifixion narrative. He's bestowed with a crown, not of emeralds and diamonds, but thorns. What does that remind us of? The original curse upon the ground. Jesus bears it upon his head as his crown. He's mockingly clothed in purple, the royal color, right? That's what the Caesars wore while the soldiers pretended to bow before him and to honor him. And then he's raised up on a cross over which the inscription reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. So on a human plane, it's the most sadistic and cruel mockery that there ever was. The whole thing is like the irony of it is just like it cuts you to the heart. But on the divine plane, it was his glorious enthronement as king and lord. It's so wild. I never cease to have my mind blown by this, is how in Jesus these two opposites meet. And, and, and they're one. Anyway, we need to move on. Um, and of course, Jesus foretold this very thing. This is John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. This is... Um, if the chronology is right, this is the day of the Last Supper. It says, or Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So his crucifixion is a victory over the world. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. It's a victory over the world, and it's the world's judgment. Now judgment is upon the world. And so as he's raised up on the cross, that's how he describes it, I'm lifted up from the earth. As he's lifted up from the earth, the ruler of this world is cast down. You see what's going on, right? His enthronement. He's taking his throne and claiming it from the serpent. So, so that the story that played out in uh, Matthew 4 here comes to its completion. I'm going to worship and serve only God, and he does that. And here he claims his throne, and which we'll consider next week. He ascends to heaven at the right hand of God. And Colossians chapter 2, he triumphed over the principalities and the powers in the cross, making an open display of them. He made fools of them in the cross. So, Humanity in Jesus is restored to its original glory. 
as lords over the earth. It seems that Jesus is crushed, but in fact, it's the serpent. His dominion is taken from him. So, 8.15-ish. Any questions about the story of Jesus so far? Anything that maybe needs some clarification? Um, There was a lot there, but questions are welcome. Mike? Yes. Yeah, see, that's confusing, right? And he only says that in the Gospel of John, which is interesting. I don't quite know what to make of that. And it's also interesting, the Lamb of God, I mean, lambs weren't sacrificed in the temple, typically. The Lamb, anyway, there's a lot of debate about what that actually means. So, I would, I don't know, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that, but I think the reading of that, his passage or his time in prison, um, that's my thought is what he means with, are you the expected one? Right. Yeah, so it may be, yeah, okay, so that's maybe a good way to put it. It may be a combination of both. So maybe he did have, because it's hard to read John the Baptist's original proclamation. You know, he's coming to, to, to uproot all the trees and to throw them into the fire, and it's this intense apocalyptic language. And to me, that squares really well with the Davidic messianic kind of idea. But then you have to make sense of the Lamb of God. So maybe there was a notion of both. And, yeah, I don't know. That's something to think about, definitely. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, he does talk about, um, I'd have to read it again, but he does talk a lot about the Abrahamic promise and the stuff that happens to Jesus in the temple. There's very similar prophecies, and you've got to imagine that those would have been probably second-hand to John the Baptist in one way or another. Yeah. That's a good point, Mike. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. Anybody have anything else? Any questions about the story, how it all ties up in Jesus? Yeah, okay. So um, the plan next week um, is to kind of trace how everything ties up in Jesus. And, and what I really want to do next week is show how it takes on a whole new glory in the new covenant and um, talk about our mission now and then um, how these, all these themes tie up in the age to come. So, well, let me pray.